The threefold misery of men introduced by sin, ignorance, guilt, and the tyranny and bondage by sin, required this conjunction of a threefold office. Ignorance is healed by the prophetic, guilt by the priestly, the tyranny and corruption of sin by the kingly. Prophetic light scatters the darkness of error. The merit of the priest takes away guilt and procures a reconciliation for us. The power of the king removes the bondage of sin and death. The prophet shows God to us, the priest leads us to God, and the king joins together and glorifies us with God. The prophet enlightens the mind by the spirit of illumination. The priest, by the spirit of consolation, tranquilizes the heart and conscience. The king, by the spirit of sanctification, subdues rebellious affections. Those are the words of Francis Turretin, one of the great theologians of Reformed scholasticism in the early 17th century, giving a perfect example of how the best theology should lead us to doxology. Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace. Let me explain what I mean about that Turretin quote. You'll find the threefold understanding of Christ's offices, prophet, priest, and king, in chapter 2 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it would be easy to think of them as pedagogical abstractions. Yet, Turretin shows that they're much more than that. By reflecting on Christ's offices, we gain insight into the real gravity of our own sin, how big the problem is, and at the same time, appreciate more deeply how Jesus Christ, and He alone, is the only possible solution to that problem. Turton's words are the opening meditation of day one in the latest installment of Jonathan Gibson's series of liturgies for daily worship. The third and final volume, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, leads us from Lent through Easter to Pentecost. Here at Grace, we've been recommending and using all the books in this series as a way to encourage one another to adopt a habit of daily worship. So we're pleased to have these new volumes stocked in the Grace Library, where you can grab a copy next time you're at church. Of course, you can also find them online wherever fine books are sold. This episode of The Commentary will give you a little encouragement at the start of the season of Lent, a time of self-examination, repentance, and fasting in anticipation of celebrating the resurrection of Christ at Easter time. We began the season at Grace this week with our annual Ash Wednesday service. Like our Lessons and Carols service on Christmas Eve, the Ash Wednesday gathering is structured around a series of lessons or scripture readings. These readings tell the story of our sin, beginning with how great a problem it is and ending with how great our communion in Christ is. Now, Following the readings each year, I always share a brief meditation. This time, I tried to sum up how the time we've spent in Matthew's Gospel, particularly during Jesus' final week in Jerusalem, gives us an image for thinking about how deep the trauma of sin really goes. I'd like to share these thoughts with you, too. 
purpose this evening has been to reflect on the seriousness of human sin, not just the seriousness of human sin, but the seriousness of our own sin, which is a topic for us to contemplate throughout the course of the weeks ahead. Because it's only as we come to understand the significance of our sin that we can appreciate the greatness of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And as over the course of the next few weeks, you seek to focus on that question, the the size of your sin and the corresponding size of his forgiveness, there is one image that you can reflect on that I think captures the scope of our sin. One image that we've kind of been living with over the last few weeks, it's the image of the temple in Jerusalem. The temple has been the setting for Jesus's ministry in Jerusalem. It's been the backdrop. It's been the kind of sometimes mentioned but always present surrounding that Jesus's ministry during this week in Jerusalem has taken place in. And that temple is not what it ought to be. If you think about the significance of the temple in Jerusalem, all that that temple represented and meant, that temple was a house of God. That temple was the place where God dwelled with his people, where his glory had been perceived. That temple, if you looked at its decoration, if you studied the motifs in the artwork, it was meant to represent the garden where human beings had once communed face to face with God before sin had come between them. The temple represented an ideal, a relationship between the creator and the creature, the way things were meant to be. And it was an ideal that sin had destroyed. The temple in Jerusalem was not what it should have been, what ought to have been a house of life, was in fact, as Jesus says, a house of death. Interestingly, the temple had always been a place of death. From the very beginning, the temple had been a place for bloodshed, a place where life was cut short. The temple was the site of constant sacrifice. The temple was a place where blood was shed as an atonement for sin. We think of the building, and because those sacrifices are so far in the past, we don't think about what a bloody and death-filled place the temple could be. In his novel, Till We Have Faces, C.S. Lewis captures that for you. He describes a temple where sacrifices are taking place, and he refers to the stench of the holy. And that's a phrase when I first read it that did not compute in my brain, because stench is bad and holy is good. But he was referring to the fact the temple would have had a smell to it. The temple was a place where slaughter was happening, and that would have been perceptible. The temple that ought to have been a house of life because of sin was a house of death, necessarily. But of course, in Matthew 23, we see that the temple is a house of death in more ways than one. It's not only a place for sacrificial 
death, but it's become a place of spiritual death and occasionally also murder. As Jesus refers to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Death was all over that building. In fact, in Matthew 23, it's interesting, as you reflect on the ground that we've covered, Jesus has two sort of architectural structures that he keeps going back and forth between throughout that chapter. One of them is the temple, but the other one is the tomb. He refers to the temple again and again. The the Pharisees swear by the temple. They swear by the altar, but they do it facetiously. They do it as a kind of trick. They don't keep those promises Jesus also compares those same men to whitewashed tombs. Tombs which are outwardly beautiful, but inside are are full of corruption. Well, the reason why a tomb is full of corruption is because things have decomposed in there. Because the tomb is a place of death. Like tombs are meant to have corruption within them. The comparison is a little bit chilling, though, to talk about the temple in the same breath as a tomb. As we saw last week, Jesus makes the the irony of what's happening really clear when he says that, that the very men who pride themselves on building great tombs for the prophets are actually in the act of plotting the murder of the Son. So the temple, as glorious as it seems, as impressive a structure as it must have been to everyone around, when Jesus sees it, represents not everything that ought to be, but everything that's come between what ought to be and the God who made it. And it's interesting, Jesus, in the words that he speaks to those men, as he utters that condemnation, And he says, they will not see him again until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We began our study of Jesus' week in Jerusalem with those words, because those are the words from Psalm 118 that the crowds shout out, that people cheer to welcome Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem. As we saw when we went back and looked at Psalm 118, That is a psalm that is written for a procession to the temple, and that procession has death in view. They're marching to a death that will take place in the temple. If you recall in Psalm 118, the words, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. So as they're singing these words, and they're welcoming the anointed one, they're also talking about the the taking of the sacrifice to the altar in order to be killed. Now, those were words that people would have sung throughout that Levitical order in anticipation of sacrifices. Again and again, that recurring uh, cycle of sacrifices that the author of Hebrews referred to in one of our readings earlier. 
But when Jesus quotes those words, when Jesus says, you will not see me again until you say these words from Psalm 118, he is not referring to those sacrifices. He's pointing forward to the sacrifice that he is about to make, the sacrifice that will fulfill the promise that all those other sacrifices only pointed to. Jesus' death on the cross is the sacrifice that he's referring to. That is the death that puts an end to death itself. That is the death that ends the temple as a house of death. Jesus says this temple will be destroyed, but Jesus will build a better temple, not out of stones, but out of people. And the house that Jesus builds will be a house of life, not death. It will be a house where God truly dwells with us. You think about Jerusalem in Jesus's day, that city and that temple stood as a testament to what the Apostle Paul refers to as the reign of sin. The death that was everywhere present, the corruption that was everywhere present, the stench of that place was a testament to the power of sin and death. Sin had overcome everything. Sin had corrupted everything, even the temple. The temple of Herod was magnificent on the outside, but it was full of corruption inside. It was not the throne of God. It was the throne of death. But through his own sacrifice, Jesus would change all of that. Jesus' tomb, when he left it, would not be full of corruption. When he left his tomb, it would be empty and in order. Jesus' temple would never be a temple of death because the sacrifice that he made, he made once for all time so that his house would be full of life everlasting. In this season leading up to Easter, this is a time for us to focus on, on what the old divines would have called the mortification of the flesh. Not that they thought most days you shouldn't worry about that, but especially now you should focus on repentance. Of course, every day we should focus on repentance. But now as we anticipate the celebration of the atonement and the resurrection, now is a good time to remind ourselves of the sin that still rules and reigns in our members, of the struggle that still goes on, well, we should work especially hard on repentance. We should remind ourselves that the life that we long for isn't here, but is in Christ. This is a time for us to remember that our hope is found not in the impressive tombs that men are so good at building, but in the living tabernacle of Jesus Christ. If you're curious about the threefold office of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, mentioned by Francis Turretin at the beginning of this episode, we've actually devoted an entire episode of the commentary to that distinction. It's an early one. It's episode nine. 
While you're there, you might as well check out episode six too. That's titled Fasting. And in that episode, Cameron and I do a deep dive into Lent and some of the practices associated with it. Thanks for listening to the commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsuefalls.org.